1921, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Berry led the British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition. And at the elevation of 21,000 feet, the expedition was crossing what's called the Lagpala, which is a four-mile-long low point or gap between two taller peaks. And the picture that you see on the screen was actually a picture taken, a photograph taken by a member of his expedition. And as they continued on their trek, they came across some footprints in the heavy snow. Although they were likely caused by a, a snow leopard or some other animal native to the region, the prints vaguely resembled the footprints of a man. The Sherpa guides that were leading them said the tracks must have been formed by what they call the wild man of the snows. And they described this wild man to be something like, and the best terms they could use was, a man-bear snowman. Well, later, when the story was related to an English journalist, the journalist mistranslated the Tibetan word for man-bear and he thought they were saying the word filthy. He believed the Sherpa guides were describing a filthy snowman up in the mountains. Well, he used a little bit of artistic license, and he gave that mythical creature a new name, the Abominable Snowman. And it didn't take long for the story to become popular, and not long after that, different artists drew what they imagined, an abominable snowman must look like, but no one was really sure. Of course, 40 years later, in 1961, a similar creature, yet even more terrifying, burst on the scene. How many of us could ever forget the abominable snow rabbit? <laughs> and those haunting words are surely burned in our memory forever. I will name him George. And I will hug him and squeeze him. <laughs> but it was three years later, in 1964, that we finally had a definitive answer on what the abominable snowman looks like. That's right. <laughs> Here is the abominable snowman from the stop-motion animated classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He even has a name. Does anyone here remember his name? That's right. Who said that? Back there. Bumble, the abominable snowman. And that's quite a handful to say. And that's a strange word, isn't it? Not just bumble. That's a strange word itself. But the word abominable. What does that really mean? What does that word abominable mean or abomination mean? I mean, it sounds like a terrible thing. It certainly doesn't sound good. I mean, you certainly don't want to say to your wife before you take her on a date, darling, you look abominable tonight. <laughs> and if you do say it, I suggest that you smile when you say it because maybe she won't know what it means. Maybe she'll think that you're saying that she looks good. But if she does know what it means, I think we can all agree that your date that night will go less well than you had planned. Well, you might be wondering why is the preacher talking about the abominable snowman today? That's a good question, and there's only one answer to that question. 
And it has nothing to do with snowmen, which leaves only one other option, abominable. Again, what does that word even mean? If something is abominable, what does that say about it? What is an abomination? Well, the answer to that question can be found both in the Bible and also in society today. And today we're going to start with the Bible. You see, up to this point in the series, I've started each message with an in-depth examination of one of the effects of the repaganization of Western culture. And you might say, say, what? What is he talking about? Well, in case you missed it, it's my contention that Western culture is undergoing a shift in historic proportions. And just way back, like in uh, A.D. 4, excuse me, the 4th century A.D., way back then, when paganism gave way to Christianity, now the Christian structures that have been built into Western uh, society are giving way to paganism. Pagan ideas are being widely embraced throughout society. They are replacing Christian ideas with counterfeits. For example, marriage used to be a Christian idea that all of society accepted as true. All of society accepted the parameters of marriage, the restrictions of marriage, but now the idea of marriage has been paganized. Men can marry men. Women can marry women. And soon, I believe, you'll see a return to polygamy. And beyond that, you probably don't want to know. Another example. In society today, people are increasingly embracing death instead of life. Oh, you have an unplanned pregnancy? Kill it. Oh, you have grandparents that are just too much to to, uh, handle? Get rid of them. Oh, well, uh, you're having a hard time in life? Consider suicide. That's the idea that is becoming widely embraced. It's a culture of death that is being widely embraced. And it's certainly not a Christian idea on any of those fronts. And just one stat that I'll give you. Teenage suicide rates have risen 60%, that's 60, 60% from 2007 to 2018. 11 years, teenage suicide rates, that's successful rates, if you want to call it successful, have risen 60%, and that is pre-COVID. The entire COVID situation and our brilliant I'll say that facetiously, solutions to it certainly have not helped teenage suicide rates. We have an epidemic on our hands. People are embracing a culture of death. Another example, society is increasingly uh, valuing approved-only speech and not valuing free speech. We looked at that last week. And so to me, the evidence is very clear our society is quickly repaganizing. And in doing so, people are openly embracing what the Bible calls abominations. And so again, the question that I have is, what does that word abomination really mean? What does it mean? 
Well, one of the things that we can be sure of that it means is that it means filthiness. It means things that are detestable, things that are abhorrent. These are, there's a few different Hebrew words in the Bible that are translated into English, translated into this word abomination. And so it means filth or detestability or stinkiness, loathsomeness, an abhorrence, something that's disgusting. Think of rotten eggs. Think of the smell of sulfur. Think of the smell of bubbling sewage. You get the idea. But it's not simply some type of physical smell. It's something that is morally abhorrent, morally disgusting. And by the way, this is not simply a matter of, well, that's just your opinion over someone else's opinion. Everyone's opinion is equal. No. In the Bible, the things that are called abominations are things that are explicitly called abominations by God. His opinion rules the day. His opinion is not just another opinion. His opinion is truth. It is an objective fact. It is a settled conclusion. It is something that has no subjectivity to it, and no debate is in the matter. And so what I've done today is I've grouped everything called abominations in the Bible into four, one of four different categories. These are things that God hates. These are things that are detestable to him. Don't do these things. Category number one, worshiping pagan gods and polluting the Lord's worship are abominations to the Lord. And the things, the particular things listed here fall under this category. They're explicitly mentioned in Scripture. Number one, making your children pass through the fire. What does that mean? Well, it's an unusual practice where in ancient days, some of Israel's neighbors had a god that they worshipped called Molech. And a bronze statue of Molech was erected with his hands out, and people would take their children, and they would place their children on a heated or red-hot statue of Molech, and the children would burn to death. God says that's an abomination. Witchcraft, soothsaying, interpreting omens, sorcery, conjuring spells, following false gods, using a medium, spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, taking for yourself false gods and engraved images to worship. And then there's a whole host of various failures of ancient Israel to worship the Lord as he instructed in his word. He gave them very specific things to do, and failure to do those very specific, clear things were an abomination to him. All of these things are abominations. They are detestable to the Lord. Don't do these things. Category number two, wickedness, which we can describe as actively turning away from God's ways. In other words, God has a particular way that he tells us to live. And this is the idea of someone knowing that way, understanding that way, and volitionally, freely choosing to go a different way. Okay? These things include such practices as intentionally leading God's people 
away from him. A proud heart, having hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. One who sows discord among brothers. A perverse heart. When wicked people worship God and they consider that to be okay. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the just. Kings, rulers who commit wickedness. And finally, the scoffer. The one who looks at God, looks at his people, looks at God's ways, and laughs in the face of them all. This is wickedness. God considers these things to be abominations. They are detestable to him. Don't do these things. Category number three. Taking advantage of people, especially the poor, the elderly, and the powerless. These are abominations to the Lord. For example, these are specifically listed. Using differing weights and measures in business. Someone comes to you and wants to buy five pounds of grain, and you, your, your scales are intentionally off. They only get four pounds, but they pay you for five. Lying. Cheating people, oppressing strangers who might not know better, mistreating orphans and widows, bribes, usury, extortion. These are things that are abominations to the Lord. They are detestable to Him. Don't do these things. And the final category is the category of sexual sins. Sexual sins are an abomination to the Lord, including... Adultery, ritual male and female prostitution, where someone would worship a false god and part of their so-called worship would be to prostitute their bodies. Bringing wages from prostitution into God's temple. Here's another one. People who have divorced one another, then later remarrying each other. This was a, a certain practice that was a temptation in Israel, where a man and a woman would be married they were, they were a family. They would be divorced. The woman would go off marry someone else. The woman was forbidden to come back and marry her first husband again by divorcing the other party. Um, some theologians say that's particular to Israel. Some say it's universal. You can study that on your own, but there it is. And then finally, there's various other sexual sins, uh, some of which I'm, I'm not going to even name because I don't need the phone call later in the week saying, Pastor, why did I have to explain this to my kindergartner? So, uh, but there's a big list of various sexual sins. I'll name two of them in particular. One of those being cross-dressing, where a man dresses intentionally dresses like a woman in order to appear like a woman, or vice versa, a woman dresses like a man in order to appear like a man. This is an abomination to the Lord, and if that's the case, I would think it would be safe to say such or so is this current idea of transitioning from one to the other, or the attempt to at least. And finally, all kinds of same-sex acts. These are all abominations to the Lord. These are things the Lord calls detestable to him. Abominations don't do these things. And you might say, well, pastor, isn't every sin wrong? I mean, 
after all, sin is sin. And I would agree that every sin is wrong. Sin is indeed sin. But I hope you understand when I tell you not to commit these abominations, I'm not giving you permission to go commit other sins that might not have been listed. I'm simply saying that God has taken extra measures to point out to us that these sins are abhorrent to him, perhaps especially so. Now, within that last category, the category of sexual sins, there is a a number of, of abominations that have become widely embraced and celebrated today. And Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, makes one of these in particular very specific. But I think that its variants would count as well. In fact, other scriptures make that explicit. You shall not lie down with a male as you do with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, you might be wondering, well, Pastor, why are you singling out LGBTQ issues? And the answer is a fair one. And I'll answer it. The reason that we're going to focus on LGBTQ plus issues today is because there is a movement that promotes these actions that God finds abominable. And by promoting these actions in the manner that their advocates do, both the Christian faith and Christian families are essentially under pressure to accept abominations as honorable actions worthy of our endorsement. You see, there is not a nationwide movement of people advocating unjust business practices, is there? Can you imagine people marching down the streets in parades, advocating for more unjust business practices? Well, no. Why? Because everyone agrees that unjust business practices are an abomination. You don't hear commercials on the radio calling for more mistreatment of orphans and widows. Why? Because everyone agrees that mistreating orphans and widows is an abomination. You don't see posts on social media calling for the ability to legally extort people. Why? Because everyone agrees that extorting people is an abomination. And you don't see commercials on TV promoting the bribery of public officials. Why? Because it's not election season yet. But there is a very loud and powerful movement advocating certain sexual practices that the Lord calls abominations. And this movement, the LGBTQ plus movement, has a very particular, a very effective strategy, and much of it has to do with the language that is used to promote it. And part of the strategy is essentially this, and you'll hear their advocates talking this way on the news and in social media, and I want you to understand this very clearly, so I put it on the screen. LGBTQ plus advocates talk about issues through the lenses of our values and beliefs. And it's very, very important that you understand that. 
because that is how you and I might be fooled into accepting these abominations as admirable things. You see, the advocates for the LGBTQ plus movement have learned not to say phrases like gay marriage. You don't hear that phrase anymore. Why? Because they know that we, and by the way, we are the audience that they have yet to convince. They know that we will reply, there's no such thing as gay marriage. And so they've hit a brick wall there. So they don't talk about gay marriage like that anymore. They don't say the term non-discrimination laws very much anymore. Sometimes you'll hear it, but not much. Why? Because the implication is that you Christians, you like to discriminate against people. And once they put us on the defensive, once you put anyone on the defensive, it's hard to change that person's mind. And so they don't want to do that to us and put us on the defensive by making that accusation. So they don't talk about that using that term. They don't use the term LGBTQ plus adoption anymore. Why? Because they know that we'll dig in and say, hey, a child should have a mom and a dad. And so they don't want to get into that argument. They don't talk about LGBTQ plus in the military. They don't use that term anymore. Because they know that we'll simply say the military ought to be focused on protecting the nation and not conducting social experiments. And they don't want to get into that argument either. And they don't talk about LGBTQ plus hate crimes, at least not that phrase anymore. Why? Because we'll simply say we don't commit hate crimes against LGBTQ plus people. Never have, never will. And, and by the way, that's true. We don't. And so instead... The proponents of the LGBTQ plus movement have learned to use language that, in their words, quote, connect people to common ground and common values. And this is absolutely brilliant on their part. I'm not being facetious. This is absolutely brilliant on their part. I want to read a statement from one of their online guides, and I want you to pay attention to the language that it uses, and in a moment I'll tell you what it does not say. Equality, and that's the key word, equality. Equality is the word of the millennium, okay? And even though there is no such thing as equality in nature or in history, that's the word of the millennium. Equality for LGBTQ plus people is really about basic human values and needs, the ability of everyday Americans to pursue health and happiness, earn a living, be safe in their communities, serve their country, and take care of the ones they love. Well, who can argue with that? Well, no one. And that's the point. You see, if you do argue with them as they use these terms, you put yourself in the untenable position of essentially saying that you are against health. You are against happiness. You are against earning a living. You're against safety. You're against serving the country. You're against taking care of loved ones. What kind of Christian are you if you're against all those things? And if you're for all those things, then you are for the LGBTQ plus movement. Do you see how the logic goes? Now, of course, you instinctively know that there's a problem with this logic. And you might not be able to Put your finger on it, so I'll point it out in just a minute. 
But just so the record is clear, as Christians, we are for health, we are for happiness, we are for earning a living, we are for safety, we are for serving the country, and we are for taking care of loved ones. Of course, we're not against those things. Someone might ask the question, well, why have some of these things been denied in the past to LGBTQ plus people? And I will be the first to acknowledge that when Western society was structured on Christian ideas, it was much more difficult than it is today to be an LGBTQ plus person. At some times and in some locales, it very well may have been downright dangerous. And it certainly must have felt unjust, no doubt about it. And now that paganism is arising from its long underground slumber, LGBTQ plus people are receiving privileges that they must believe are long overdue. But health and happiness and all of the others on this list are not the whole story, not hardly. And LGBTQ plus advocates know it. They nevertheless use this terminology to try to widen their base of support, bringing in, if possible, people of the Christian faith. You see, these advocates want to convince you to accept LGBTQ plus lifestyles as spiritually legitimate, as natural, as normal, and as beneficial, and they do this by leaving the obvious out of their talking points. As Christians, we are against what is not addressed in the LGBTQ messaging guide or by their proponents in the media. What we are against is the practice of certain types of sexual activity which are an abomination to the Lord and a distortion of His creative design. What we are against is the unceasing effort to manipulate us, coerce us, berate us, shame us, and legally force us and our children into endorsing and celebrating and committing abominable behavior. And what we are against are their vain efforts to silence faithful Christians who will continue to speak the truth of God's Word on the matter. As Christians, we are against all abominations. This is our obligation. The Bible is our standard. To us, the Bible is the very Word of God. And by the way, this theological stance is not a new development or a recent decision. It has been the Word of God for Christians since day one. Now, what we must decide is what kind of Christians and what kind of church we want to be. And you might wonder, well, what are you talking about? There's a couple of options. Because there's a lot of Christians out there. There's an increasing number of churches out there that have decided to go along with whatever the world wants. And so we have a few options. Option number one, we can be a world-approved Christian and a world-approved church. What do I mean by that? Well, a world-approved Christian and a world-approved church affirms a few things. Number one, 
They affirm that every interpretation of Scripture is equally valid. The interpretation of Scripture is whatever the reader makes of it. And so if you see the word blue and you think the word red, then it's red. And so whatever the reader wants to make of Scripture is actually as valid as any other view. A world-approved Christian and church also affirms that however you view Jesus Christ, that is the lens by which you interpret Scripture. Here's how you play that game. You make Jesus in your own image. You decide, you know, I don't think Jesus would be against bad behavior, at least not the bad behavior that I commit. And so that's how I view Jesus. And then as I interpret Scripture, as I read Scripture, all I'm doing is I'm interpreting the rest of Scripture through the lens of my Jesus. That's how you play that game. And that way you can say that you're interpreting Scripture through Jesus and still be approved by the world. A world-approved Christian and a world-approved church also affirms that the meaning of Scripture can be changed according to changes in society. Whatever society decides is the right thing tomorrow, well, that's what Scripture says too. And if that's too untenable, there is an alternative that simply you ignore Scripture passages that become unpopular. That's how you become a world-approved Christian or in a world-approved church. That's how you get everyone on social media to like you and still be or still be able to call yourself a Christian. The second option is that we decide to be a biblical Christian and a biblical church. A biblical Christian and church affirms the understanding that Jesus had of Scripture. In other words, how did Jesus view Scripture? That's how we view Scripture. So how did he view Scripture? He viewed Scripture as every single letter of it and the entire scope of it being the very Word of God. A biblical Christian in church affirms that Scripture should be interpreted the way Jesus did, in a plain straightforward manner that takes into account a passage's grammatical and historical context. And a biblical Christian in church affirms that Scripture as the Word of God should be submitted to in belief and practice, that we don't place ourselves above Scripture, changing it whenever we wish, but we submit ourselves to Scripture, let it speak for ourselves, and we change us as Scripture dictates. Two very clear options. We can be approved by the world, or we can be biblical in belief and practice. Jesus told us very plainly that the world would hate us because it hates Him. But according to a lot of churches, according to a lot of Christians, the highest value they can conceive of is gaining the approval of the world. And they will toss aside the clear and unequivocal word of God if they can gain a few more likes on social media or comments from the popular crowd. We have seen churches and Christian colleges and even entire denominations essentially deny 
the authority of God's word so they can submit to the authority of man's opinion. To them, they think they're becoming all things to all men. But becoming all things to all men in that case means becoming unfaithful to God. And I don't think that's what Paul meant when he wrote that phrase in Scripture. Let every other denomination and church and family and person decide for themselves what they want to be and who they want to serve. But for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So, as biblical Christians and as a biblical church, we need certain things. And we need to remember that we have a great gift from the Spirit of God. We have the gift of wisdom. Scripture tells us that we can have God's wisdom if we ask for it with faith. And we need to know the wisdom in this matter so that we can know the difference between temptation and sin. Knowing the difference between temptation and sin can help us understand the difference between someone who struggles with same-sex temptations and someone who commits same-sex acts. You see, people, all kinds of people, face same-sex temptations due to a wide range of factors. And many of these people are Christians. Christians who strive with all their heart to live a holy, faithful life before the Lord. The exact same thing, by the way, could be said with Christians who struggle with heterosexual temptations. God does not condemn anyone for being tempted. Being tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, yet he never sinned. So Christians, if God does not condemn someone for being tempted, neither should we. And by the way, if you happen to be a believer who struggles with same-sex temptations, my counsel to you is the same as my counsel to anyone else. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. We also need the wisdom to understand that God forgives people who commit abominations. Abraham was a liar, which is an abomination to God, and God forgave him. King David was an adulterer, which is an abomination to God, and God forgave him. Zacchaeus cheated people, which is an abomination to God, and Jesus forgave him. And every one of us, I'm certain it could be said that we have been guilty of having a prideful heart, which is an abomination, and Jesus forgives us. If you or someone you know is guilty of committing an abomination of a same-sex activity, there is forgiveness. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't take heterosexual sins upon himself. He didn't take some sins upon himself. He didn't take certain sins upon himself. The Bible tells us that he took the sins of the world upon himself. All of my sins and all of your sins he took upon himself. And there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We need to make that message clear. We also need the wisdom to know the difference between acceptance and endorsement. We, as a church, we as Christians, accept people. But we don't endorse all behavior. As biblical Christians, we invite all people to our church. We are hospitable to all people. And we invite all people to hear the life-transforming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We accept all people as they are. But we do not and never will endorse all behavior, sometimes our own. Sin is to be repented of, not celebrated. If you identify as an LGBTQ plus person and you're seeking the Lord or just curious what we crazy Baptists are really like or maybe curious how we're going to treat you, you're welcome to be our guest. We hope that you will experience the Lord's presence among us. And we need the wisdom to know how to lovingly relate to LGBTQ family members. I don't know how many of you have LGBTQ members in your extended family, but I do. I know that some of you may have children or grandchildren that have decided to go down that path. My best advice to you is to love them, respect them, and gently point them to God. I want you to remember something very important. As a Christian, your goal is not to try to get your loved ones to not sin a certain way. If all you care about is trying to get your homosexual son or lesbian daughter to stop being that way, I would gently tell you that you're misguided in your desires. Maybe you're just embarrassed about their choices, that it might reflect poorly on you as a parent. Listen to me. Don't harm your relationship with your kids because of your pride. The issue is not their behavior. Their sexual choices are the result of a deeper problem. They are away from God. Let your goal to let them know that they have a heavenly Father who loves them and wants to welcome them back home. That's it. Let the Holy Spirit deal with the details. We need the wisdom, finally, to know the difference between what the world calls love and what God calls love. I've mentioned in a previous message that one of the deficiencies of same-sex so-called love is that it does not reproduce. 
Same-sex love does not reproduce. And reproduction is one of the ways that God designs love, any kind of love. It grows, it multiplies, it reproduces. But beyond that, God explicitly says something in his word about love that excludes same-sex actions. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. There's a verse right there in verse 6. It's been there for a long time. It says, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. You see, this verse teaches us something very important. Love and unrighteousness are incompatible. Stated differently, unrighteous actions are not loving actions. You cannot lovingly commit abominations. You cannot lovingly mistreat orphans and widows. You cannot lovingly commit adultery. You cannot lovingly defraud people. And if same-sex actions fall into the same category as other abominations, which they do, then same-sex actions are not loving in God's eyes. The LGBTQ messaging has a very popular saying these days. It goes like this. Love is love. Well, it's really not. Not all love is love. Some things people call love, God calls unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is not love. What is love is God. What is righteous is God. There's something in common with those two sentences, and it is God. And when you and I, regardless of our background, regardless of our past, regardless of our persuasion, regardless of our viewpoint, when you and I come to Him in faith through Christ, He receives us to Himself. Jesus put it this way, Everyone, who? Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you've done. Everyone that the Father gives Jesus will come to Jesus, and Jesus will not cast him out. I would suggest that we begin to pray for those that are away from God a simple prayer. Father, bring them to Jesus. Give them to Jesus. Because we know that if the Father Give someone to Jesus. Jesus will never cast that person out. If today you are ready to come to Jesus, I have good news for you. He will never cast you out. Oh, but preacher, you don't, you don't know what I've done in the past. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because before you ever did that thing in your past, a long time in history past, Jesus already died for you. He died and he took on that thing that you did in your past. He took it on himself. He took the guilt, the shame. He took the weight of that upon himself. 
and he died on that cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus rose from the grave and he is Lord over all. And as Lord over all, if he makes a promise to you and he says, I'll never cast you out, you can believe it. He will never, ever toss you aside.